Thank you. Thank you very much, Ed. The Graduate Theological Union is a consortium of eight American seminaries. Eight different denominations have their seminaries at the GTU. It's located on the campus of the University of California at Berkeley. And that location allows divinity students from all of those churches to be able to take classes in conjunction with the biblical, archeological, theological studies of the University of California. So at any given time, if you're in one of those getting a degree from there, you could be taking a class from California, uh, University of California professors in any of these. If you took any of these classes in the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and about half the 90s, the ancient Near Eastern Studies Department was chaired by Rabbi Jacob Milgram. Dr. Milgram was a prominent Jewish scholar. In fact, today, mention his name in any one of a thousand Jewish circles, everybody knows who he is. It's like knowing who Abraham Heschel is. When it came time for Yale University to um, put out their extensive, extensive uh, Torah commentary, the Ankle Bible, the Anchor Yale Bible Commentary, Leviticus was given to Dr. Milgram. Three volumes, nearly 3,000 pages, all authored by him. By the time that he had done that, he probably was the world's foremost living authority on the ancient Jewish system of sacrifice, the cult of sacrifice, Israel's ancient system. He probably was the living authority upon it. And in one of the classes with the GTU, and I'm not sure what year, but I do know that our friend Don Pate scholar, pastor, and friend, was sitting in the class when Jacob Milgram challenged these Christian divinity students with these words. If you want to impress me about your Jesus, don't tell me he's your lamb. That impresses me none at all. In fact, I probably could go into the New Testament and the writings of Paul and show you why that does not impress me at all as a Jewish scholar. If you want to impress me about your Jesus, you tell me he's your high priest. You tell me he's your high priest and we will get somewhere in the discussion about temple and sanctuary and atonement. And of course, Pastor Pate said, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. We know that better than who? We know that better than anybody. My question is, do we? Do we really know that better than anybody? Christ as high priest. We're supposed to know this, but do we? Hebrews, as we have shown, certainly has put who at the center? If the uh, environment, if you will, if the background, if, if Hebrews was a painting, the background certainly would be the sanctuary, wouldn't it? It certainly would be the tab tabernacle. And according to the author of Hebrews, there's one guy that makes that whole thing go, and who is it? It's the high priest. In chapters two, three, and four, he's put forward, Jesus is put forward as qualified to be this high priest because he is both human and God. 
He is son of man and son of God. We have, we've, we've read these beautiful words so far, like in chapter four, where it says, therefore, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, son of God. Let us hold fast to that con- confession. He ministers to the sanctuary, not the one on earth, but where? Heaven. He's fully qualified, fully qualified to be a divine high priest on top of being one fully qualified to be our high priest. Because it says we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He qualifies because he's laid a hand on God and he lays a hand on you and me. This isn't a human high priest of old. This is of a different order. And we're told, and where I got the title for this series in Hebrews, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is finished. So when we left off a few weeks ago in chapter five, I concluded with the question, do we get this? If we're boasting as Seventh-day Adventists that we know, we know exactly what Hebrews is talking about when we talk about as Christ as our high priest. If so, if so, then why? Why are we stuck usually in the same places that these Hebrews are that this author is writing this letter to? Because when I read about them, they sure sound like who? They sure sound like us, don't they? Especially the way he finished chapter five. He says about this, about this high priest, if you will, about him, I've got much to say, but it's hard to explain because you are dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, if you're going to boast that we know that Christ is our high priest, then we better have a better word for righteousness than our own. Solid food, he says, is for the mature. So I left us with this question. How much longer are we gonna argue about this high priest? How much longer are we gonna argue about his nature and whether or not he was qualified to do, whether or not unintentional sin is forgiven, whether or not arguing about sin versus nature versus righteousness versus obedience versus grace? How much longer are we gonna stay at a distance from our high priest? How much longer Are we not going to trust him? That when he said it was finished, when he made purification for all sin, he sits down at the right hand of God, which is where he's at right now, as our intermediary. When are we gonna trust our high priest as suffering servant? When are we gonna trust him with everything that Hebrews says we're supposed to trust him with?
So everything we study today in chapter six is sandwiched between these two references. In other words, before we start, the reference back in chapter five was this. It starts with this. This is a bookend to what we're going to study today. This is the first one. Having been made what? Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. If we're looking for perfection, if the author of Hebrews is telling us you need to mature, you need to work towards perfection, are we trusting that truly he is perfect for us, with us, in us, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of who? Of Melchizedek. Then came our passage. That's after, it's after this right here. It's after this passage right here where the author says, I, I got a lot to say about this guy. I got a lot to say. But you guys are dull in understanding. We're babies, according to the author. He can't say any more to us than this until we begin to mature. And then through chapter six, it will end this way. The bookend will go this way. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So everything you look at in chapter six and the rest of chapter five, everything that we see, because we're gonna get taken to the woodshed by the author of Hebrews today. But everything that we know and hear and see about us are supposed to be bookend by our high priest. And maybe by the time we're done, we'll have to understand that our lives from beginning to end physical, our lives from beginning to end spiritual, our lives from beginning to end emotional, everything that we are should be bookended by our perfect high priest. Everything that we should be should fall in these bookends, if you will. So we'll talk a bit more about why Melchizedek a little next week, but basically what he's saying is this high priest it doesn't come anywhere near of the old orders. He's not coming from the Aaronic priesthood. He's not coming from the Zadokite priesthood, which Zadok and his descendants kind of take over after the captivity. He's saying this is a brand new order. This is a whole new ball game. This guy is a forerunner. With me? And we'll talk a bit more about Melchizedek, Melchizedek in that order next week and what he's saying right here, what it really means. But for now, it says, therefore, therefore, after calling us babies, <laughs> after saying that we, we can't handle food, we gotta, gotta have milk, he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, what does he wanna do? Let's move on. Let's get out of the primers, he says. Let's get out of see, dick, run. Let's move on. Elementary teaching. What's very interesting about that word elementary is it literally is the word beginning. In other words, we gotta get out of the beginner's class. We should have been out of cradle roll a long time ago, he's saying. Let us move on from the beginning teaching about the Christ. Let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God 
excuse me, I read that wrong. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. We will graduate from crater roll if God permits us. But holy cow, did you just read that list of what he calls elementary? Of what he calls basic? My goodness, repentance, turning from dead works towards versus faith toward God? Works versus faith? Washings or baptisms, if you will, and everything that it implies? Because that word washings and baptisms, uh, it encompasses a whole wide range of variety of using water. Spiritually, yes, but also physically. Arguing about what baptism does and what it doesn't. Arguing about the resurrection of the dead. I think that, it, that, that there's a very real evidence during uh, what we would consider Second Temple period that there are very large uh, groups or populations of believers who don't believe the resurrection of the dead. If you're fighting about this, he says, you're still a what? You're still a baby. And eternal judgment. <laughs> Those are the elementary teachings. Have you ever looked at that list? Just put that list up there and looked and look at that list and now think of every Sabbath school class, every class you've attended at camp meeting, any time that we started talking about something and I guarantee you 95% of it has been of this. Has it not? The only thing is missing is what you're allowed to do on Sabbath. If you put that up there, you, you just called our entire 150 years together as the remnant people of God babies. So if those are the elementary teachings, where does he want to take us? Where are we supposed to go? You know, maybe what the author is saying is that if we really understood if we really lived within the bookends of the high priest, that all of that would be elementary to us. How'd you like that to be basic? How'd you like to not have any question about any of those things in our own lives and especially about others? Maybe the author is saying, if you really are in Christ, then all that seemed to be important every day that you have fear about, that you worry about, that you get discouraged about. Maybe if we really were in Christ or sandwiched between the high priest, we would consider it all elementary. It would be like looking at a flannel board. And I don't know about you, but every time I see a flannel board and cradle roll, it at least makes me smile. Amen? So dead works versus faith. Now if you look at all of these, look at all of these, I think that the top one, he mentions this because 
He's talking about a system. He's talking about a system that certainly is dead works. As a matter of fact, he's gonna use those words dead works twice in the letter. We won't see dead works again until chapter nine. But real quick, the way that he uses it in chapter nine is that in verse 13 he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer sanctifies or makes clean those who've been defiled so their flesh is purified, how much more, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. So the way that the author, his context of dead works certainly begins with the sanctuary. What made the, the old sanctuary dead works is because it was constantly being done by human high priests who lived and died and lived and died. And every day had to offer sacrifices. Every day for themselves, for Israel, for any sinner that would believe. And they had to do it every day. The dead works is when one comes along and puts an end to the dead works, are you, are we going to have faith instead of still operating in the dead works trying to please God? His blood is the replacement to the dead works. Our faith in that blood is the works all prescribed in the law, all reminded that they're good works. They were all prescribed in the law. All of them were. Ten commandments and all. They're there. But we are reminded by the author of Hebrews that all that the Torah promises the believer is available in Christ, our high priest. Everything good about what has been written down, everything good is made available, Ed, in the word become flesh. Christ, the one human that takes the word off the paper and lives it. And by the way, when the people that believe or put their faith in dead works encountered Christ living the living word, in other words, when people encountered the word become flesh and they only had the word written down, they only had the word on paper and tablets, they looked at him thought that he was violating those words and they called him the devil. So you see how important what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across here. Dead works could be good works, but what makes them dead is that if we leave them on the page, it's never enough, is it, Ed? It's never enough. So people who put their faith in that people who uh, replace, if you will, the faith of the blood of the high priest, of this high priest. When they encounter love, they think it's heresy. When they encounter love, he's no longer God anymore, he's Beelzebul. There are things that came first, sanctuary, feasts, sacrifices, Sabbaths, they're good, but they're so much better when they're fulfilled in Christ. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He didn't nullify it. 
Law wasn't nullified, it was fulfilled. The law on the tablet couldn't come close, couldn't come close to revealing God's true nature, could it? Couldn't even come close. Jesus takes it off the tablet, becomes the living word, and now he becomes the exact representation of his nature. He is God's nature. He is love incarnate. That's the high priest we're supposed to sandwich our lives in between. He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is what I should have put up there is that list again. Guess what? That list that, that, they, that were elementary teachings, if you will, that we argue about and wonder, that list is ta- completely taken care of right here, isn't it? Redemption, sanctification, righteousness, that covers everything. Resurrection, eternal judgment, it covers it all. That's why he doesn't even start with saying what the dead works are until he makes sure that we know that we have such a high priest. Perfect, undefiled, only had to give himself once. It is finished. So how serious is if we don't grasp it? I think that's what this interlude is about, this little interlude right here. And I remember when this came up in the Sabbath school lesson. That was a tough one to teach. I forget who was teaching that day, but it was a tough one to teach. But he says this, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, they've fallen away. And it's impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. You wanna know how serious it is? If we don't grasp this, if we don't give it all to our high priest, if we don't move on from the elemental teachings of what the priest does, is, and will always be for us, that if we walk away now, he says repentance is impossible. We can't make it back. So it sounds like the author is saying, once you've truly grasped, once you've truly been enlightened by the teachings of the sanctuary and the high priest, once you've tasted the word, tasted it, ingested it, if you will, eat my flesh, drink my blood, once you've done that, are you saying that you can't fall away and and not expect to be able to, to get it back, you fall away for good? Is that what it's saying? I don't think it's saying that at all. I think what it's saying is, is if we've been truly born again, truly born again, and live by faith, and just have a little bit of faith, have your doubts, have our fears. People sometimes ask me, they say, they say so how, if, if they, they, they're, they, they're in fear because they have the assurance or they want the assurance that, that we're teaching, they want it, but they're still afraid and they still doubt. Being afraid and, and, and being in doubt in no way does anything for your assurance in Christ. Does he know that you're afraid? Does he know that you're in doubt? A modicum of faith, a tiny bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith. Have you ever seen a real mustard seed? It's no bigger than a speck of dust, a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. 
Just have that. If you've got that, then I will be bold enough to say yes. It's impossible for you to fall away. Jesus said that about the Father. I'm the good shepherd, he said. They're in my hands. And just in case that's not enough for you, then I'm in the Father's hands. So you picture being in the, in, in, in the, the hands of Christ, and then the other personhood of the Trinity puts his hands over it, which by the way are the same hands. That's pretty secure, isn't it? That's pretty secure. And remember the context of this too. He's talking about getting away from dead works, putting faith in Christ. If you have a little bit of faith, then no, you won't fall away in the first place. So people who have not fallen away don't have to worry about whether or not they can get back, amen? He says, but when they do, and they still put themselves in dead works, when that if you're still going to trade in your faith for dead works, it's like you're crucifying him again. It's like you're going back to the old, to the old, putting our faith in, in, in an ironic or a... A, a, a member of the Aaronic priesthood of the sons of Aaron uh, high priest and constantly having to do it over and over again. Now it doesn't mean that we don't ask forgiveness for individual sins. It doesn't mean that we don't experience atonement for every sin every day that we can. But always, always, if we confess our sins, what is the answer? Every time. And the only reason that John could boast about that is because he knew he had a high priest, a perfect one. It's the only way that you can write something like that. John lived in those bookends of the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. But if you don't, it'd be just like crucify him again. See, unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices. Day after day, we'll read this next week. For, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, this he did once and for all. He offered himself. Don't have to be crucified again. That's what we have faith in. That's what we put our assurance in. His atonement is perfection. It's righteousness. It's perfection and it, and it can't come in the flesh or works of the law. You can't please God any more than he is pleased with you right now. He's not waiting for you to get your act together to fall in love with you. He's been in love with you since before the foundation of the world. Paul planted a church in a place called Galatia. Probably my favorite letter. John's my favorite book. Romans, Romans, well, that's why I, that's why I don't like saying what's my favorite. Romans and Galatians, one and two, okay? One and two, and the only reason one has to be two is because I can't occupy both of them at the same time. But Galatians, 
And, and Paul believed that he had done this. Paul believed that he moved them beyond the elemental teachings. He gave them all the elemental teachings and he felt confident enough to move on, to go to another place. And then one day he gets a letter and finds out something that they decided to do, that they decided to do without asking him. And he was shocked to hear that they took a teaching, something that he would consider a dead work, to try to make them better in the eyes of God, to try to make them better than they were when he left, and he was pretty upset. By the third chapter of the letter, he's calling them fools. You guys are fools. Who's bewitched you? What witch has you under her spell? Is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. I made it so clear that it is finished. I made it so clear that Jesus paid it all, that it was as if you were there. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? Did you experience so much for nothing if it really was nothing? When they decided to do this, Paul told them, you made me feel like nothing. Well then, does God supply you with the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Does God exist with you? Does he walk and talk with you because you um, uh, somehow uh, keep a modicum of the works of the law or does he do it because he is God? And does it happen because you hear the word and you have faith that he is God? Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see those who believe are descendants of Abraham having been crucified, having the high priest's perfection, not just his, his sacrifice, but also his, his uh, intervention, his intermediary. He is perfect. He fulfilled every bit of the dead works. For Paul, the gospel of Christ crucified so completely rules out any other supposed means of being righteous before God that he finds it utterly incomprehensible for anyone who had once embraced such a gospel ever to think of supplementing it in any way. The Galatians don't recognize the sandwich that they live between. They don't know, they don't understand the depth of what Christ has done for them. They also don't understand the depth of their human weakness. And they certainly do not know the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. It's so clear, it was so confident, Paul was, that it was as if you'd seen it yourself. He said, but now that you've decided to do this, Jesus will have to be crucified anew. I told you this happened and it happened only once and I preached it to you so clear it was as if you had seen it. But now you're telling me you don't believe it. So it's gotta happen again in order for you to see it.
That confidence that Paul talks about, that's what the author of Hebrews is asking us today. We may boast about knowing or having knowledge of Christ as our high priest, about knowing what the sanctuary is supposed to teach us, but do we have the promise? Do we live the assurance? Do we live in that sandwich of Christ the high priest only in the order of Melchizedek? See, not having the assurance doesn't matter what the good works are. Doesn't matter whether or not they're dead or living. They could just be labeled as dead. Because he puts it this way, he says, ground then that drinks up the the rain falling on it repeatedly, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. In other words, if you have the assurance, if you still believe, and we we have moved, we have turned away, we've repented from dead works to faith in Christ, now when the rain falls on us, it begins to produce fruit. But if we will not move on, it then produces thorns and thistles. It is worthless on the verge of being cursed. Its end is to be burned over. It doesn't matter now what he's saying. If you don't move on from this, it doesn't matter then uh, how clearly Paul preaches to us. It doesn't matter how clearly we begin to understand. It just doesn't matter. We bear no fruit. In other words, you can come to church and live to be a Christian the rest of your life, but you'll only produce, produce, we'll only produce thorns and thistles. So I look and I read and I think of God's people and their record, having the good or dead works, but not the fruits. Why must they be hauled into captivity? Get them out of the land. Why, why do they have to be taken to the temple? Because they put their trust in those good dead works. And as long as they are trusting in those dead works, as long as they are doing exactly what Torah tells them to do with their sacrifices, then they can go home and worship other gods if they want to. Because every time that a prophet comes along and says, you guys are worshiping other gods, you shouldn't be doing that. They turn and say, temple's still standing, I'm still in the land, I still have all the promises of the covenant that God gave me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. But there's something that bothers God a bit more about them. Trying to live and keep these works perfectly. Isaiah 1 begins in verse 12 by saying, when you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. If you guys are gonna continue to be this way, I would rather not see you in my temple. Bringing offerings is futile, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons, your appointed festivals, my soul hates. You've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This isn't just about worshiping idols anymore. This is about something else as soon as he mentions blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. 
As soon as he said your worship is worthless because of blood on your hands, that's exactly what he's talking about. Living by the old prescribed, keep the law perfectly according to the letter, but it does not penetrate your heart. You still have no mercy, none, on those who I've called you to minister to. The marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the poor. It's not a good look. It's not a good look at all to be faithfully doing acts of worship and to have blood on our hands. Dead works without love and mercy. Because, all because we don't have the assurance of our high priest to live in that envelope. So, if you have that little bit of faith, that little mustard seed, then the author is telling us quit worrying. Quit fighting, quit worrying. Quit defining, if you will. Even though we speak in this way, he says, even though we speak in this way, we're confident of better things in your case. Hey, do you hear what he just told us? We're confident of better things in your case, things that belong to what? To salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the what? And the love that you show. He's saying, I, I may have called you babies, but I do see that you work with love. He said, as long as you got that, as long as you're working, then quit worrying. Quit fighting. Quit debating. Live in that assurance of your high priest. For his sake, in serving the saints, as you still do. We want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of what? The full assurance of hope. Isn't that where we started? The full assurance in the high priest, ending in the full assurance of the high priest, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When God made a promise to Abraham because he had no one greater for whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. He's saying, this doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from leaders and teachers and rabbis and pastors. It comes from God. And there's no higher swear, if you will, that it can go. There is no higher that it can go. There is no absolute uh, assurance that you can have that anybody is gonna renege on this promise. Why? Because it came from God. Amen. And he kept it to Abraham, didn't he? As far as humans go at the time, was there anybody higher than Abraham? Who did Abraham have to swear by? I'll surely bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained what? Obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all what? To all dispute in the same way when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the what? Unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it by an oath. 
So that through two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things about God in which it is impossible for God to prove false, in other words, you will never find God not keeping his promise, Vicki, and who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. And we have this hope and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. Who's he talking about? Who entered the shrine behind the curtain? The high priest, any high priest could be, except he's not talking about this curtain. He's not talking about the one on earth. He says, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those who take refuge in him, he breaks it all down. Think of the fruits moving beyond the elementary. Just ask, what are our fruits? What are they telling people? When the rain falls on us, what do we produce? Just asking. I'm just asking. We think that Caiaphas the high priest began the business of the temple. And when I say the business, he was the one that started the business of being able to buy your sacrifices, exchange money, so forth and so on. By the way, bad thing or a good thing? I think it's pretty good. When you have to travel for four or five days from somewhere in the diaspora for Passover, how easy is it to be able to bring a little bag of money to buy your sacrifice when you get there rather than having to bring one yourself? I think it's a good thing. It's not the practice. It's what was going on with it. It was the reason for doing it. It's not the practice. It brings in big time profit, huge profit. As a matter of fact, there are some scholars beginning to say that we should put money at the top of the list as of why the leaders wanted Jesus crucified because he was upsetting the system. He was upsetting what was happening. He was costing Caiaphas money or he was going to. Zechariah, by the way, says that the Messiah actually would eliminate the traitors from the temple. That's a sign. Jesus did it probably twice. Remember? How did he feel about the money changers and the sacrificial sellings, if you will? How did he feel about it? Jesus' zeal, he said, zeal, because when they saw him do it, they remembered that, that it said that zeal for my house, for my father's house, is what leads to this. He was showing his zeal, but maybe his zeal didn't have so much with the trade itself, but where it was most certainly taking place. See, the courts, if you will, were separate. The courtyards around the temple. Herod had expanded the temple complex to nearly a square mile, almost a square mile, and they included these huge courtyards, and it started uh, in, in what you would call levels of holiness. So, so the least sacred would be the outside court, and then you worked your way in, if you will. So the outside court was the court of the Gentiles. Move a little further and you're in the court of Israelitic women. And then finally you move into the courtyard of Israelitic men. After that is the temple itself. Remember when Jesus cleaned the temple, he said, uh, he said is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. 
It's a house of prayer for who? All nations. By the way, all nations in Greek, in biblical words, Gentiles. The courtyard of the Gentiles. He said that'll be a house of prayer for everybody. The place where Jesus finds the trafficking happening is in the court of the Gentiles. The one place, the one place where a Gentile could experience at least a little of the reverence of God. It excludes them from appreciating the one place where they might be welcome. This is what has him angry. There were literal walls that were dividing it. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. In his flesh, he's made both groups into one, broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And remember in Galatians, to go along with that, how many walls are supposed to exist? Neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. So then remember at one time, you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made by the human hands. Every Gentile, all nations were being prevented from worshiping because when they decided to set up the marketplace, they put it in their courtyard. And those words, all Gentiles, that thing, the court of the Gentiles, Notice how broad a stroke that is. That is anybody else who's not circumcised. That is everybody else. That has all the makings, if you will, of human prejudice. It's a system based on bigotry. It had become a racist religion fueled by, uh, if you will, a quote unquote, free enterprise. And it all became completely, absolutely dead. It's supposed to be in Abraham, all nations shall be blessed. That was the promise made. And we've been entrenched by so many boundaries and so many dividing walls. I don't think we even understand or know what actually separates us. We always felt that we thought we understood this, right? In the world, but not of it. But have we pondered what this really means? Have we pondered what we understand about our high priest as it moves on beyond cradle roll, as it moves on beyond whether or not we're allowed to go to movies or drink caffeine? or keep the Sabbath. See, Hebrews stands in, in all of this. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, the temple. We're enthralled by it as Adventists. We've studied it, we've dissected it, theologized it. For 4,000 years, we've been moved by it. Our, our, our understanding, when I, when I begin to study with someone today, our understanding is salvation as understood by illustrations in the sanctuary. Its study is what illustrates what has been done. It's supposed to be foundational to a Seventh-day Adventist theology, doctrine, and even lifestyle. 
We hear of its beauty, its perfection, gleaming gold, silver, beautiful rich tapestry of blues and reds and purples. We read about its beauty and its order, but there is another way to look at it and that's what Hebrews is having us do today. Another slight way, a slightly different way to see it. There's been another reason for the gleaming and the precious metals and the deep rich colors and the finest fabric for curtains. Maybe it was a way to hide the tabernacle from what it really was, a dumpster behind a slaughterhouse a violent cauldron. Hear me out. What did the priest see and face from the moment of going on duty? Morning offering of a ram, throat sliced, skinned, quartered, intestines measured out as to what to be burned on the altar and what to be discarded and destroyed. Two quarts of blood, some dashed against the sides of the altar, the rest in a bowl to be discarded. Every morning and every evening, at least that. Then placed on the altar to burn, to send up to smoke. <laughs> Barbecue is a pleasing odor. But how about if you purposely burn your barbecue every morning and every evening? You didn't take it off until it was completely burned up. And then hundreds of sin offerings every day, lamb after lamb, same procedure of slitting, skinning, gutting, burning. Then in the evening, it starts with another ram. Every day, a violent cauldron of grace. See, a dumpster's an appropriate way of looking at this tabernacle. See, the sin wasn't completely cleansed the day that the sacrifice was brought. It was the sin that was transferred to the sanctuary. It was a dumpster for our sins. It absorbs sin. It stores it. The confession over the sacrifice asked that the blood be the vehicle to transfer the sin to the sanctuary. Every year on a certain day, one time per year, atonement, Yom Kippurim, the cauldron of violence and grace was emptied, it was cleansed, but even this act of pure grace on this planet required even more violence. After the daily sacrifice, the high priest then would have to sacrifice a bull that would atone for his and his family's sin. Seven and a half gallons of blood. Then the goat of the sin offering and its two and a half quarts taken all the way into the most holy place where even the most clean places in the tabernacle and of the ark and its mercy seat had to be cleansed. It's lid of pure hammered gold. They have blood stains on them. All. Atonement. The purest act of grace given to a fallen sinful race requiring the violent act of brutality that we made by our natures. But praise God, in all this, all this, in this violent cauldron stands one figure, one peace, one hope, a forerunner and an anchor the high priest. Clothed in white linen and fine, beautiful fabric and precious stones and gold, the one man on the whole planet allowed to live out that relationship that God wanted all along, face to face, walking and talking, the only one allowed in the most holy place to stand before God, serve him face to face, theoretically. He has to make atonement year after year all year in order to just have those moments right there with him. 
God told Miriam and Aaron that he could talk to Moses face to face. At Sinai, he told them to come up the mountain and they refused. They asked for this intercession. They asked for this priesthood. So God moved with his, on top of his little box, brokenhearted, stuffed into the back room, if you will, of the temple. And his children were completely content with this. They then begin to espouse the theory and theology to know the illustrations. They claim they see the Messiah in the temple. We proudly pat ourselves on the back and perform the sacrifices and, 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 and just begin to decorate the te- temple and expand it and beautify it and improve its waste disposal. But still this loving, longing, broken-hearted God sits behind a veil, hidden from the children he longs to be with, sits at the center of this violent cauldron of grace. By the Hebrews' day, the ark is gone. The ritual is truly merely ritual now. It's a dead work. The priesthood is completely politicized and corrupt. The veil is still there as if it serves a purpose. It's still a violent cauldron, but now it's lacking the grace. So what's the point? The point is this. Author of Hebrews says, what we are saying is we have such a high priest. One who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens. We have such a high priest. Not one made clean by the blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood. A willing victim thrown into this violent cauldron. He buys us a violent grace. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, and as one whom hides their faces. He was despised, we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities, carried our diseases, yet we account him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that knowing something about the tabernacle means something. None of this works without the high priest. Remember Rabbi Milgram's words. You want to impress me about your Jesus. You tell me he's your high priest. None of this goes without the high priest. Just as the former human high priest at least once a year pulled aside the veil to enter on behalf of all, this high priest with his willing act of victimhood, this forerunner, this anchor of our souls behind the veil, the high priest that's willing to sacrifice himself, this priest willingly brutalized by my sin tears away the veil forever. If you remember one thing about the tabernacle, in the outer court, you are completely atoned for. Sacrifices happen. Baptism happens. Completely atoned for. In the holy place, you're completely interceded for. Your prayers are made sweet and perfect. You're given light and bread. If you're perfectly atoned for and perfectly interceded for, then what are we waiting for? We live in the sandwich of the high priest. 
we put ourselves there. He is our forerunner of hope, our forever high priest and anchor of our soul. Thanks for holding on with me. May we live in that envelope. Figure out what it means. Move beyond, if you will, the milk that has been lovingly given us. I'm ready for some food. Happy Sabbath.